got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Amos. Some of y'all looking at me like, is there a book, Amos, in the Old Testament? There is. Let me give you a clue on how to find it. Turn to the book of Daniel, which your Bible should probably just open up to since I took so much time last year to preach from Daniel. But then turn three books to the right, and you'll find the book of Amos, and it's nine chapters. I want to begin a new series of messages this morning, which I've simply given the title, God and Justice. You know, in many courthouses and legal institutions throughout the Western world, more than likely you'll find a statue known as Lady Justice. And the history of Lady Justice goes back thousands of years to the days of Rome and Roman mythology. And in most modern depictions, Lady Justice carries symbols of justice. For example, she is wearing a blindfold. Uh, she's holding a set of balanced scales in one hand and a sword in the other hand. And the blindfold is said to represent impartiality as far as the law is concerned. The balanced scales uh, represent fairness as far as the law is concerned. The sword is said to represent swiftness of judgment. Our English word justice itself comes from a Latin word um, which means straight or close. The idea is that of a plumb line. Justice refers to a standard or basis of morality. Justice is alignment with a moral standard of goodness. And more often than not, we refer to a moral standard as a law, which is why justice is equated with that which is lawful. Injustice has to do with lawlessness and that which is unlawful. But in order for there to be justice, there has to be an objective moral standard. Now, you know that you can't truly have justice apart from an objective moral standard. And so the question then comes up, who decides what that moral standard is and what that moral standard is not? Only a transcendent lawgiver, God himself, can decide what that objective moral standard is, and that's what God has done in his law. The psalmist said in Psalms 45, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. And so this is why this little book of Amos is so very important. Even though it's in the minor prophet section of the Old Testament, in no way does that diminish the message of this prophet. And the central message of Amos is concerned with divine justice, and it involves a warning of judgment against those who despise it and those who pervert it. And so God raises up the prophet Amos in his day, uh, and God sends him to cry out against the sins of Israel. And in particular, there were two overarching sins that Amos was to cry out against. One had to do with an absence of genuine worship. There was a form of religion and religiosity, but it had taken the place of genuine worship. Amos was to cry out against that. But then there was also a lack of justice in Israelite society. 
as neighbor was mistreating neighbor. And many were being taken advantage of. So essentially, Amos cries out against this idea, the sin, no love for God and no love for one's neighbor. Now you remember that Jesus said that the two most important commandments, in fact, the two commandments that sum up the entire law and the message of the prophets is this. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Well, those two commands were being disregarded in Amos' day, and God raises up this prophet to cry out against those sins. So Amos chapter 1, if you've found your place, I want to invite you to stand with me as we read the scripture together this morning. Amos chapter 1, and I only want to read really the first two verses or so. But the book of Amos begins in this way. Verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, in other words, here is, here is the message of Amos that Amos cried out in his day, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. In fact, if you want to just skip over a couple of pages to the fifth chapter, you might even could say that the key verse in the book of Amos is found in verse 24. Through the prophet, God's message to his people was to take away the noise of their songs because it was all so hypocritical. And the issue was this, verse 24, God says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so that, in essence, sums up the message that Amos is sent to preach to the nation of Israel. And so for just a few minutes this morning, I want to speak from this subject, an unlikely prophet, because that's exactly who Amos was. So Lord, we ask that you would speak in a powerful way. We thank you for your word, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak into our hearts and lives for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen, you may be seated. You know, we hear a lot of conversations these days around that word justice and various issues that are related to that word. And often you hear justice referred to in terms of social justice. That's to be distinguished from legal justice, things associated with the law. There's divine justice, which speaks of man's moral accountability to God as creator and lawgiver and that kind of thing. Uh, and so within certain segments of the church, you've got folks who now are advocating social justice as an important part of the gospel. Even going so far as to say that the church is not truly preaching the gospel if the church is not preaching the message associated with social justice. In fact, if you go all the way back to the early part of the last century, uh, this, the social gospel became a very popular idea. And basically, proponents of the social gospel came to reject the truth 
that the gospel is primarily a message about individual salvation. They taught that the death of Jesus was more an example than anything else. And so in the wake of that movement, you had liberal mainline churches that concerned themselves more with social action rather than preaching to people the news of Christ's atoning death and his bodily resurrection and how salvation uh, is given to the one who repents of his or her sin and places their personal faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so the issue with the social gospel was that it really was more social, less gospel. In fact, no gospel. It got to the point where there was no gospel whatsoever. And so this issue then with social justice and social engagement and social activity and all of that, is that to be considered an an essential part of the gospel? Well, you need to keep in mind the fact that the gospel is an announcement to be preached, not an agenda to be adopted. The gospel is an announcement of this news that Christ died on the cross for sinners, was buried in a borrowed tomb, uh, was bodily raised on the third day. This is what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we saw this several weeks back uh, when he said to the Corinthian church, I declared to you the gospel that I received. I preached to you the gospel that was delivered to me. And what is that announcement? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so the gospel then is an announcement that you and I as believers are sent with into the world and we're to be heralds who declare that message. It is the news that sinners can be saved. Those who turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, that is not to say that the gospel does not lead to social implications, because it most certainly does. Uh, The gospel is not just simply information that we keep to ourselves, but listen, this is a message that has radically changed our life, and as such, there are certain results that are produced in the life of the person who has genuinely believed the gospel and has been saved. And so many of those results, of course, uh, James outlines this in his New Testament book when he says that faith without works is dead. We're not saved by our works, but make no mistake about it, we've been saved, we've been forgiven, we've been set free from our sin debt, the debt has been paid by Jesus, and yet we know that God has prepared good works for us from before the foundation of the world that he intends for us as his people to walk in. And so again, this is the result of the gospel, but it's not the gospel itself. Now what I want to do over the next few weeks is simply point out from the Bible, and in particular the message of Amos, what true justice really is, and how it's so very different from much of the ideology behind the emphasis that we hear today. One of the things that I think we tend to forget as believers is that the culture around us often uses the same vocabulary as we do as the church, but we're operating from two very different dictionaries. Uh, This is certainly true in terms of justice. There is an understanding in our culture today about what justice is, but so much of that understanding has been informed by ideas that are highly unbiblical and incompatible with New Testament Christianity. 
Same thing's true with love. The world around us says that love is love. And yet we know that the scripture says that God is love, which simply means that God is the one who defines what love is. God is the one who gives shape to it. Love is one of the attributes of God, as is justice. And so before justice is um, a moral endeavor or a moral obligation, uh, before it's an illegal obligation, justice is rooted in the character of an omnipotent God who has revealed himself to humanity. And folks, so much of the moral confusion that abounds in our day stems from the fact that generations ago, Western society, for the most part, severed itself from this notion that there is an almighty God to whom we are accountable, and he's the one who determines objective truth. He's the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. And so what you now have, there's moral confusion in the culture today that stems from a lack of understanding as to whom we are ultimately accountable We are ultimately accountable to the God who has made us in his image. And listen to me, no matter what part of the globe you travel to, no matter what country you travel to, there you will find a people who have some type of innate sense within them of right and wrong. Every human society has some sense of justice. Where does this sense of justice come from? It comes from the fact that man has been made in the image of God. Man has been created uniquely in the image of God. Does that mean that man's sense of justice is perfect? No, it is not. Because the Bible also teaches that every part of humanity has been deeply affected by Adam's sin. That includes our understanding of right and wrong. It includes our understanding of justice. And so that's why in order for there to truly be justice, there has to be an ultimate transcendent, objective standard of justice. And who is it? It's God himself, as he's revealed himself in the pages of his word. And so that's what the book of Amos is all about. And that's why the message of Amos is so very important, because it's all about the application of true justice in society. And again, a key verse would be chapter 5, verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The Hebrew word that's used in that verse, and used at least four times in the nine chapters of Amos, the Hebrew word for justice um, basically has this idea of treating with fairness. Uh, The Hebrew word means that a person is to be dealt with on the merits of that person's case, regardless of that person's social status, regardless of that person's skin color, or whatever. And so the Hebrew idea of justice there uh, involves giving a person what that person is due, whether it be punishment for a crime or even expanded uh, protective care. And whenever you see this term used in the Old Testament, it's used at least 200 times in the 39 books of the Old Testament, it always describes taking up the cause of someone who is most overlooked by society. Someone in a place of true vulnerability, such as the widow, the orphan, someone who had no social currency. 
And so God, in his law, stated that his covenant people were to be just and righteous in their dealings with one another because this was reflective of God's own character. It was the psalmist who described God in Psalm 68 as being the father of the fatherless. The protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Now, just as it is in Amos 5.24, that word justice is often coupled with the word righteousness. And so the Hebrew word for righteousness, uh, the Hebrew word for justice, oftentimes these words are used interchangeably throughout the Old Testament. For example, Proverbs chapter 8 sort of personifies the wisdom of God and says, I walk in the way of righteousness along paths of justice. Psalm 103, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. So at its most basic fundamental level, justice, in the true sense of the term, it's rooted in the character of God. And so before it's a social endeavor, before it's a legal obligation, before it's even a moral standard, justice by its true definition is a divine attribute. And God is the one who defines what true justice is, and he's done that in his word. Now one of the issues that Amos had to confront in his day was the perversion of true justice. In chapter 5, verse 7, he talked about those in his day who turned the justice of God into wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. So in his day, he discovered that there were those who perverted justice and they turned it into something that it was clearly not. And so again, if human society is to have justice, if there is a fixed standard of justice, where do we go to find that fixed standard? Amos is going to call God's people back to God himself. Psalm 97 says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And so, folks, God is both righteous and just. And you ought to be grateful that he's both righteous and just. If he were righteous but he were not just, he wouldn't be God. If he were just but he were not righteous, he would not be God. He's both righteous and just. And he, not the shifting and changing consensus of cultural opinion, he is the plumb line by which we measure all claims of justice. It's rooted in his holy character. He's revealed it in his word and most importantly in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Another important verse as far as justice is concerned in the Old Testament is Micah chapter 6 verse 8 which says, He has told you, O man, what is good. As the creator, as the one who's uniquely created us in his own image, God himself has told humanity what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. So it's this notion of justice, divine justice, that Amos is concerned with and how it's without partiality and how it's really the application of the righteousness of God in the life of God's people in terms of their relationships with one another. So notice a few things that are worth mentioning here as we get started. Uh, The context The first thing that I would draw your attention to is the context of Amos. It's important for us to understand uh, what was going on in his day and why the call of God came to him the way that it did. 
And so verse one really helps frame up the context of his life in ministry. We're told that it was in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam II, who was king of Israel. Verse one says it was two years before the earthquake. Someone says, what earthquake? We don't know, okay? Uh, we don't know. We simply know that this, there was an earthquake that happened, a major event, and the message of Amos, the ministry of Amos, happened two years prior to that event. It could be that the earthquake was something that God used to get the attention of his people. After the message of the prophet had been uh, heard, after God had raised up the prophet to warn his wayward people, who's to say that God didn't use some type of natural disaster to get the attention of his people? Which, by the way, doesn't God tend to do that? When the ground begins to literally shake beneath your feet, uh, God tends to have your attention. I've heard it said that there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. When the artillery shells start going off around you, you hit your knees and you pray. (laughs) It's what you do. So this is the context then. Um, Two kings are mentioned there in verse number one. So the context, it ought to remind you that this is a time of political instability to begin with. A little bit of Old Testament history here. You know that the first three kings of Israel were Saul, David, and Solomon. And under Saul, David, and Solomon, you had the united monarchy. The kingdom was united. But after the 40-year reign of Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became king, and the nation was divided due to Rehoboam's foolish decisions. You had 10 of the northern tribes who removed their allegiance from the Davidic throne, and they established their own kingdom in the north, And they made a guy by the name of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat king, also known as Israel's king, Jeroboam I. And so the southern kingdom was made up of two tribes. You had the larger tribe, the tribe of Judah. And then you also had the tribe of Benjamin. These two tribes remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty. And so this was the political situation for God's people for a long time from about 930 B.C. leading all the way up to the exile. In 722 B.C., the northern tribes are carried away into captivity by the Assyrians, never to return. And it was because of their rampant sin of idolatry. And so Amos, his ministry, the date of his ministry, it's somewhere around 760, 755 B.C. or so during the reigns of these two kings. Jeroboam II in the north, and Uzziah, king of Judah, in the south. Now, what was going on as far as the world stage was concerned, Assyria was the growing dominant superpower of the day. Up until that point, Israel's neighbor to the south, Egypt, had been the more dominant power broker of the day, and for the most part, the Egyptians were peace-loving people. They really didn't practice conquest like some other nations did. They defended their borders if they were threatened, but for the most part, they remained in Egypt. That's different with the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to have a lust for power. The Assyrians are going to be hungry for conquest. They're more ruthless. And so when they emerge on the world scene, they're going to set out to dominate the Middle Eastern world, and that's really what they do until they are conquered by Babylon. So this emergence of Assyria in the north changes everything for God's people in the land, both Israel and Judah. 
Those two smaller kingdoms were situated along travel uh, trade routes, which meant that they were susceptible to attack. And so God's going to raise up the prophets to speak to Israel's sin and disobedience, and, and Amos is going to warn Israel of impending judgment unless they repent of their sin. Now, that's political instability, but then, believe it or not, uh, the context of Amos' day also involved economic prosperity. When you look at the two kings who were mentioned there in verse number one, both of these kings had very long tenured reigns. Uzziah in the south was king for 52 years. Jeroboam II was king in the north for 41 years. And so even though the landscape was politically unstable, at least for a temporary period of time, there was a stability that gave rise to an economic prosperity. Israel's neighbors, for the most part, were subdued. Assyria was still trying to get its act together during this time frame. And so there really were no wars to be fought. There really were no threats as far as they could see. Their borders were secure. And so you know what that did? That really gave rise to this environment where money could be made and it could be made in a hurry. And so economic wealth, economic prosperity becomes true of both Israel, more so of Israel than Judah in the south. Now here's the thing. Israel didn't handle its prosperity very well. Because the prosperity and the material abundance created this sense of complacency in their hearts spiritually. Making money became more important than worshiping God. Those who were in power became greedy. Pursuit of material gain came at the expense of those who were in legitimate need. And so society became marked more and more by the haves and the have-nots, all while Israel was neglecting each other in legitimate need. And it's into that situation that God's going to send his prophet with a major message. Let me just take a time out for a second and just simply say that a lot of the issues facing our nation today are associated with prosperity and abundance. I know that that not, may not be true of every single individual who would describe themselves as being materially abundant, but as a nation, our country has been the most prosperous nation on earth. Lack of a real foreign enemy threaten our shores. This has helped give rise to this sense of national complacency. And really, ultimately, it stems from a generation that has never known anything but stability. That wasn't really true of my grandparents' generation. In the generation that sent her sons off to fight Nazis in World War II. And those who had to stay behind all had to chip in and contribute to the war effort. There was a common threat, and that common threat tended to provide this national sense of unity that for the most part seems to have eroded in our day. But folks, let me tell you something. If there's anything that we learn from Old Testament Israel, it's that things can change on the turn of a dime. And the very things that we take for granted, the very prosperity that we tend to be so proud of as a people, all that can change on the turn of a dime. 
So here's what happens then. This political instability and economic prosperity fosters a sense of religious hypocrisy. God's people become spiritual hypocrites. One person said it this way, it's kind of like Dickens, his tale of two cities. It may have been the best of times, but it was also the worst of times. Materially, it may have been the best of times, but spiritually, it was the worst of times. And yet, Israel interpreted their prosperity as this sign of God's blessing, and they became smug in the belief that God was about to subdue all of their enemies and make them the rulers of the world But as Amos is going to point out, they were actually under the judgment of God due to their breach of covenant with him. And so their worship became shallow and superficial. There was a thin veneer of religion on the surface, but it was void of true worship within. And all of their religious observances only served to mask their idolatrous pursuits. And let me tell you what they did in the north. They even came up with their own form of homespun religion in the north. Going all the way back to Jeroboam I, who was threatened, and he felt threatened. And he said, well, if the the, the northern tribes, if they go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, and they see the temple, and they're reminded of the law of God and the covenant promises to David, then they may reunite in terms of their allegiance to the Davidic crown. And so what did Jeroboam I do? He had golden calves built, and he had golden calves stationed in the south at Bethel and stationed in the north. So he comes up with his own religion and wants people to go to those shrines to worship and to bow down and say, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt, rather than remaining true to the God of Scripture who had revealed himself. So it was a time of religious hypocrisy. The fabric of society itself was being pulled apart at the seams. And then that led to moral degeneracy. This was also true of Amos' day, and all of that's directly connected to their spiritual complacency. Don't be surprised that when there's an absence of true worship within, there's going to be a failure as far as conformity to God's objective standards in terms of morality. So you get to chapter two and you'll notice that Amos cries out against the rejection of God's people, the the rejection of God's law, their greed, rampant sexual immorality that they had given themselves over to. So this context then involves both kingdoms enjoying security, prosperity, they have all the trappings of religion, but the sins of both Israel and Judah were eroding the moral and spiritual fiber of the nation. That is the context. That's the background as far as Amos and his ministry is concerned. Which, by the way, I just think I need to be quick to point out, God sends Amos with a message to his covenant people. And the covenant people of God, you know who the covenant people of God are in our generation? It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy for us to want to read this book and and, and all of the immorality and all that's associated with, with Israel as a nation and we want to import that into our culture and into our nation. But folks, let me tell you something. Peter says, let judgment begin in the household of God. Let it begin with God's covenant people. God has always taken the sins in the lives of his people far more serious than the sins in the unbelieving world around us. Amen, preacher. 
So the prophet comes along and the prophet holds up the mirror of God's word and tells God's people to take a good long hard look. That's the context. Number two, what about the call? What about the call of Amos? The book begins in this way, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. It's interesting to me that God raises up a man and sends him into the decadent, disobedient culture of his day. And that's often the way that God always operates. Where there's a need for confrontation, God raises up a prophetic voice. It's what he does with Amos. It's what he did with Jonah. It's what he did with John the Baptist, who is raising his voice in the wilderness once we cross the threshold into the New Testament. That's what he does with Amos here, and it's all the more remarkable when you consider just who he was and where he was when the call of God came into his life. What kind of person was Amos? Well, outside of the book, we don't know anything else about him. And there's just a few comments that he makes concerning himself. Verse 1 says that he was among the shepherds of Tekoa. The point is, he was not from the nobility. He was from the small village of Tekoa, which was in the hill country, 10 miles to the south of Jerusalem. Now, again, that tells us something else. He is a citizen of the southern kingdom, living in a village 10 miles to the south of Jerusalem, but the call of God's going to come his way, and God's going to send him to the northern kingdom to cry out against the sin in the north. So you go to chapter 7, and in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, he says some other things about his background. He says, I was not a prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and it was the Lord who said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So in other words, Amos didn't have a prophetic pedigree. Amos had not been to prophet school. Amos was just a shepherd from the hills, minding his own business when the call of God came into his life. And I have this sneaking suspicion that if Amos had been applying for a position in Christian ministry somewhere and had been asked to email a copy of his resume, his resume would have had no credentials. Probably wouldn't have gotten a second look And so in that sense, Amos is someone just like you and me. He's a simple, ordinary man with a simple, ordinary trade, living in a simple, ordinary place, yet God is going to use him in an extraordinary way. It's the very thing that the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God chooses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. That's what he does in Amos' day. I like what Alistair Begg says. He says, when God wants to get his message across, he doesn't look to the Ivy League institutions of man. No, he finds a man in the hills and baptizes that man in his power and sends him into the city. Let me tell you, our our world desperately needs some people who've been alone with God, who know the truth, who have the call of God upon their life, who can speak truth into the situations and issues that our world is facing today. So that's the call. 
But then what about the cry itself? I'll finish with this. The cry of Amos, it, it begins there in verse number two. Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion. He thunders his voice from Jerusalem. So he shows up on the scene in that cosmopolitan urban context of the north even though he's a country bumpkin and here's the message that he's preaching the Lord is roaring from Zion what is Zion? Zion is the place of his sanctuary those in the north would immediately associate Zion with the temple in Jerusalem they know exactly what Amos is saying Amos is calling the people of God back to the place of true authority the word of God itself the voice of God himself. And men and women, listen, my application for you this morning simply is this. Who are you listening to these days in terms of what and what not to believe? There is a sea of voices, and listen, social media has made this so much more easy for everybody to spout their opinion and everybody to put forth their theories and all of this, and you can get wrapped up in it if you're not careful. But listen, there is to be a difference when it comes to the people of God because we understand that justice and the application of justice ought to be found in society. It ought to be true in terms of our relationships with one another. Yes, we should reach out to the least of these and do ministry to the least of these. Do it in Jesus' name because the love of Christ is what compels us. But it is not the culture who defines what that looks like and what that does not look like. It's God himself. And that's the message of Amos. Now I've got to stop here. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Some things for you to keep in mind as you consider this little minor prophet is simply this. God holds nations and individuals accountable for their sin. Did you know that? God holds nations and God holds individuals accountable for their sin. And God, in his justice, demands that sin has to be dealt with. There's not a single one of us who've not broken the law of God, and as such, we're guilty. Who can say that we have loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we've always loved our neighbor as we love ourselves? I know I can't make that claim, and you can't make that claim either. Only one person could truly make that claim that he loved God perfectly and that he loved people perfectly. It was Jesus Christ himself. And yet it was Jesus who was taken and nailed to a cross. This same Jesus who fulfilled all the law's demands in his own death, he satisfied the holy justice of God on sin. And there at the cross, the mercy and the justice of God meet and that means your sin, listen to me, if you are in Jesus Christ, your sin has been dealt with at the cross and you've been set free. And that means that you're free to love God, you're free to love your neighbor as yourself. But it's the love of God and it's the gospel that compels us to do that. Amos also teaches me that God sends ordinary people into the world with the truth of his word. 
Amos was a shepherd, you may be a teacher. Amos was a shepherd from Tekoa, you may simply be a businessman or businesswoman. Stay-at-home mom, law enforcement officer. But that means God wants to use you to speak truth into your circles of influence. Are you willing? Are you, are you able to respond? One final takeaway, Amos tells me that the church is different and God intends for the church to be different than the culture around us. In terms of the ideas that we imbib, our belief system, our value system, all of that is different simply because we know God through relationship with His Son. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you have never been saved, I urge you right now, right there where you are, Repent of your sin, place your faith and trust in Jesus and be saved. Lord, thank you for your word. And God, I know that there's so much confusion in our world today. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but there's an enemy that wants to keep humanity in darkness. But Lord, thank you for the light of your truth. Thank you for your gospel. And God, may we boldly declare it in the love of Jesus Christ to our neighbors into the nations, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.